For those of you that may be new to Sovereign Grace or visiting us, we're presently in a course that we've called God's Grand Design. We're looking at what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood. So in week one, we looked at how we're equal but different. We're equal in our value and worth and dignity as men and women alike, Genesis chapter 1. But we're, we're different in the way we, offer, we operate, different in the way we function, different in our role, Genesis chapter 2. And then in weeks two and, four, 2 and 3, we then looked at what does that look like within marriage? What is the role of a husband and, and what is the role of a wife? And today as we continue the course, we're looking at manhood and womanhood in the church which is today's title, Manhood and Womanhood in the Church. An important, often controversial topic, but an important one. So let's read together at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. This is the Apostle Paul. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that your word is so clear. Lord, when we give ourselves to truly sitting under your word, we're not left guessing. And so, Lord, as we come to this topic today of manhood and womanhood in the church, Lord, would you give us eyes to see? Would we not sit under this word with unhelpful lenses on? Would we sit under this word, gazing at you with ears to hear? Help us, Lord. Amen. You know, when we started this series four weeks ago, as I said then, I started it with a degree of excitement and also trepidation. It was exciting because without doubt, biblical manhood and womanhood, when properly understood, can truly change people's lives. It can help people. It can change marriages, it can change families, it can change relationships. And so I was excited to get it out there because I know of the effect that this can have on people's lives because once upon a time it had a profound effect on my life. And still does. But I remember those early days when I began to hear it, it profoundly affected my life. But also I started this course with a degree of trepidation because without doubt, biblical manhood and womanhood, as displayed in God's word, is profoundly and overwhelmingly counter-cultural to the common thinking of the day. You know, just like on the 23rd of September 2009, when Sydney awoke to a storm of red dust, 
I wasn't here for that day, but all of you, I trust, were. I wish I was because it sounded crazy, but I remember watching it from afar. I remember thinking, do I still want to come? It just looked like Mars for, for, for a few days. From what I can understand, the air was thick and red, planes were diverted, ferries were cancelled, traffic slowed to a crawl, and emergency departments were filled with breathless patients. And for a day, even the secular press began to wonder, is this the end of the world? But within a day or so, the storm had passed, and all it left was a very fine red dust across everything. Across cars, across houses. If anybody, unfortunately, had left their windows open, across the interior of their houses as well. Well, the truth is, I think the feminism storm of the 1960s and 70s has left a similar red dust across our city today as well. See, the feminism movement at its most benign, the women's liberation movement that it was called then, the aim was to promote women's equality with men. And some good things, some really good things came from that. The whole idea was in line with God's word that teaches us that men and women are equal in their value and their worth and dignity before the Lord. And women, in, in one sense, in a most benign sense, were just trying to get that recognition, and it was good. And so I am pleased, as are they, that women can now vote, they can own property, they can have bank accounts, they can have an unrestricted education, they can sit on company boards, all things that both men and women alike should be able to do for the glory of the Lord. And yet that 60s and 70s movement had a far more sinister side as well. It wasn't just about equality with men. It was about being better than men. About freedom and independence from men in a profoundly competitive sense. And thus, girl power was introduced. Something the Spice Girls then just claimed to fame on. Because the whole point is we're not just equal to you, we're better than you. And so profound competition arose in those early 60s, 70s and then into the 80s. What then has happened is so many of us, depending upon our age, have grown up in a society where the red dust of feminism has fallen, but we don't even see it anymore. And we just grow up then in a profoundly gender-neutral world, which is very different to what our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents ever grew up in. Today now in our homes, it can be very difficult to discern the difference between a mom and a dad, or a husband or a wife. If you say to a child now who's eight years old, who believes he's a girl, that no, you're not, you're a boy, you could end up getting arrested for that. Because he believes she's a girl. And so he should have the right to claim that he's a girl and go in the boys' toilets. And if we try and stop that, it's like, are you a bigot? What's your problem? This kid wants to be a girl. It's very different to what our parents or grandparents had to deal with. Now, if you go onto a bus and you say to a, to a woman, if you're sitting down and she's, she arrives at the bus and you say, oh, would you like my seat? You know, good luck. She might say, oh, thank you very much. Or she might say, do I look weak to you? Is there a problem? Because we live in a society now where things are very, very read so very differently. It's gender neutral to the max. And yet when it comes to God's word... It is so very clear that our gender matters. Not just in terms of our sexual organs or our sexuality in terms of how God has made us. But our actual gender before the Lord really matters. We are different by design. 
Gavin Peacock, in his book, The Grand Design, says it this way. He says, we are either male or female. Not one singular sex or something in between, but binary sexes. Male and female by creation. It is clear from Genesis 1 that God values both men and women the same. There is no superior sex, and both are created in His image and given a common mandate. But equality of personhood doesn't demand uniform sameness. Just like each player is equal, but fulfills a different role within the football team, God has designed our equality to be expressed differently in the way we relate to each other as men and women. The Bible explains that equality of value does not mean unlimited equality. But God purposely made distinctions between men and women that were not just biological, but are instead rooted in the very image of God, stamped on the soul of a man and woman. God wants to say something more about himself through the differences between the sexes. Listen. This flies in the face of our culture, which equates value and dignity with role and authority. It argues that the more authority you have, the more value you have. But that is just not true. That's what our culture screams of, isn't it? Real equality means real equality in role. Why? Well, because we put value on role. That's where we put all our emphasis culturally. But the Bible doesn't do that. God himself puts the value on who we are in Christ. And then explains you're equal in value and worth and dignity, but you're different in roles. Why? Because the Godhead in the very first place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, wanted to make us with two different roles, reflecting their three different roles within the Godhead. Equal, but different. And so in homes, God made it that the man would be the head of the home, the spiritual leader of their home, and would therefore lay his life down for his wife. And that the wife then, in response, would lay her life down to help him and aid him, lead the home in any way that she can. And all of life then, God made us masculine and feminine. It isn't just like he made Adam and Eve and they were like gender neutral. And it's like, oh, you're going to get married? You're going to get married? Are you going to get married? Great, we'll give you different roles. No, right from the off, it was clear there was masculine and feminine. And we'll look at that, we'll look at that more next week. Because I want us to see in all of life, it doesn't matter married, whether you're married or single, in all of life there are differences that we want to uphold and enjoy. And the same would be true of the church. Within the local church there are a whole range of different roles. See, the God who designed the church, his family, is complementary in every way. It's important to note that our roles are complementary and therefore they are equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord. Pay attention to Ephesians 4 verse 16. The whole point is when each part is working properly, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. It's clear that when we become a Christian, everybody has a part to play in building up the church. Sadly, in our society, even in Christianity, usually now people go, oh, you're a pastor. Wow. It's amazing. What do you do? Oh, you serve coffee. Oh, well. Why is that? 
The Bible just celebrates we have different parts to play and we all play them. If everybody wants to be a hand, there's no legs. If everybody wants to be a leg, there's no hands. We need hands, we need arms, we need hearts, we need body parts. Everybody has an important part to play so that the body builds itself up in love. And so everybody has different parts to play for the glory of the Lord. And most of the parts in the body of the church can be carried out by men and women alike. Except two. There are two parts in the Bible that are gender specific. Two parts, only two. But two parts when it comes to understanding the way the body works that are completely gender specific for the glory of the Lord. The first is Titus 2, a distinctly feminine role. A part that only you ladies can play. See, in Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, this is what Paul writes. He says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So there we are in Titus 2. We have a distinctly female role, an important role that a lady or ladies are meant to play, i.e. older, more mature women in the faith are to train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. And the stakes clearly can't be higher for the importance of this role being played by ladies, because he says at the end, why is this the case? Well, so that the word of God may not be reviled. I mean, that's a massive statement. He's helping Titus, his, one of his sons in the faith, realize, listen, as you get your church going and as you set it up, you must find older, more mature women to train the younger women because, Titus, you ain't going to be able to do it. You're a fella. You're going to need to find women to do this role. And they must do it because if they don't, the word of God itself may be reviled. Literally just thrown away, discarded. Cluster's no big deal, both in the church and beyond the church. That's why in Sovereign Grace Church we have a Titus 2 ministry. And I thank God for both Emma and Meg and the way they lead Titus 2 ministry and the leadership team that they have around them as we seek to ensure that we do have older women training younger women in all these facets of ministry. It's important. And it is a distinctly female role to do that. I will not be rocking up at Titus 2 anytime soon. Because biblically defined, that's not my job. And I'm not the right gender. But then there is a distinctly male role. 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 through 12. It is written in the negative. He is still addressing women. You can quickly work out the positive of what it means for men. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now in our culture, even as you say that, people go, 
this is God's word. We are being addressed by the Lord now. I'm not even adding to it. I'm just telling you it. What Paul is saying here very clearly is that the public authoritative proclamation of God's word to the assembled church, the role, if you will, of giving a sermon, or the role that we often call preaching, is to be done by a man. It's a male role. Now here's what I found after 17 years of pastoral ministry. When you talk about the female-only role, everybody goes, oh yeah, yep, sounds good. There's no pushback. There's no confusion. There's no concern. But when you talk about the male-only role, people go, whoa! Major confusion, major concern, major difficulty around it. Why the one and why not the other? Claire Smith, in in her book, God's Good Design, says the following, which I think is so helpful relating to these verses. She says, If the difficulty of a passage of Scripture was decided by the heat of the debate surrounding it, or the number of books written on it, or the number of people attending seminars on it, 1 Timothy 2 must be one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. And given that much of the debate and most of the books concentrate on just two of the 15 verses, verses 11 and 12, we would have to conclude that these two verses must be almost impossible to understand. However, the sticking point in 1 Timothy 2 has been over two verses that I would say are relatively uncomplicated. We might want to ask questions like when and why and what does all submissiveness mean? But I think if we take these verses at face value and ask the question, can a woman teach or exercise authority over a man? The straightforward answer would have to be no. And I think she's right. I completely agree with her. She goes on in her wonderful book to talk about how a pastor friend of hers was relating to um, a young girl, a university student from an ethnic minority group. She was just become a Christian herself. And so this pastor was taking this young girl through the Bible to try and help her understand the Bible and read through the Bible. And so he got to 1 Timothy. And so he read the first chapter with her. It all went well. It was great. And then he realized as he turned the page to chapter 2, oh, no, we're going to get to this topic and it's going to be difficult. So he reads it. And there was just silence. And he's thinking, you know, did she not understand it? So he, so he prodded her and said, hey, you know, um, there's a few things in there that could often be a bit controversial in Australia. What's, what's your perspective? She said, no, it seems to be really clear to me. seems to make sense. And he said, well, what, what do you hear it to be saying? And what do you understand to it be saying? And she says, well, quite clearly, when it comes to the gathered church, women are meant to be preaching. That's a man's job. And he said, oh, yeah. Moved on to chapter 3. Now for us, we can read into that, that well, you know, maybe for her, given her ethnic cultural background, maybe it was just easier for her. Maybe she comes from a culture and an ethnicity that, that was just easier to grasp, and so she just fitted in with it very easily. 
But the thing I want us to understand with that is just maybe that's why in our ethnic culture it's so hard for us. Because we also come in with a completely different angle. And so we struggle to read it at face value. We read it and think, well, he mustn't mean that. When actually when we just stop, just stop, and blow the red dust off our Bibles and read it, it's clear. 1 Timothy 2, gather church. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's clear. We might find it hard. But it's actually very clear. Now, just to be clear, this verse does not mean then that women aren't competent or lack the ability are unable to teach in any context. Not at all. The Apostle Paul, who wrote that verse, also writes others to help us see the role that women are to play. He actively encourages women to teach and train other women in Titus 2. He actively encourages women to train children with their husbands in Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy 5. He commends Eunice and Lois Timothy's grandmother and mother for training Timothy over years of his life, helping him prepare for the ministry. He also commends Priscilla and her husband Aquila for their instruction of Apollos. And they've helped him, seemingly as a new believer, to understand God's word and ever increasingly apply it to his life. And he encourages all believers, both men and women alike, to sing and to pray and to prophesy, so that when the church gathers, we may all sing together, we may prophesy together, we may enjoy being together, we may pray together. Why? Well, so that the church may be built up, and so that others may hear teaching through those things. Because there is a teaching element to all those things. Colossians 3.16, there is a teaching element through singing. When we sing and declare truth, I experienced it this morning. At one point, the band went quiet, and I could hear you all singing so loud. And what is happening in that moment? You are teaching me. You're teaching me these words. We're all being taught. Same happens when people pray. They don't just pray, and you don't learn anything. They pray, and you think, that's true. Because they're teaching you. And when prophecy comes, there's an element to teaching with that as well. It doesn't mean that women should do none of those roles. They should. Paul applauds that and encourages that. But what Paul does mean in this verse is that the public, authoritative proclamation of God's word to the assembled church, the role of giving a sermon, the role of preaching, is to be done by a man. And this verse, I believe, then is crystal clear. Given our culture, it is fraught with confusion. You stand in the world and say this, people look at you as if you are an absolute idiot and chauvinist. All I'm doing is reading the scripture. But people find it so difficult. And I think in truth, in church life, it is often fraught with confusion as well. We look around at other churches that would disagree with what I'm saying. And I'm okay with that. My own mum and dad would have a different perspective. And I'm okay with that. And yet I think it is fraught with confusion and misunderstanding 
because there is a failure to really grasp that verse and apply it in our lives. Now, I'm aware then there are common pushbacks on 1 Timothy 2, and I want to serve you as well as I can. And so for the remainder of the time, I want to go through six brief common pushbacks on 1 Timothy 2. The things that you're going to want to discuss with me at the end of this message, because minimally, you'll probably say to me, oh, a friend once thought, but actually you mean you. But, you know, we, we can look at these. I want to explain all these pushbacks so that you can see it biblically. And here's the first common pushback. The first common pushback that we receive is, listen, but surely this was just cultural. So what Paul is speaking there is to just, at church, it was a specific culture at a specific time. And therefore, it doesn't apply to us, right? Because it's just a cultural thing. It was just very specific to them and their time. Well, folks, we have to look at what the... You have to do exegesis. You've got to study the Bible for what it is and let the Bible speak for itself. And when you do that, you realize that the role of preaching, which is up center at this point, there's nothing cultural about that. The fact that there would be preaching in local churches is an absolute bedrock of church life. In Ephesians 4 verse 11, we read that God has given some to be pastors and teachers to local churches to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to preach God's word, to feed his sheep. And you realize that that practice, that role is cross-generational, cross-geographical, cross-cultural. It doesn't matter where you live for that to be true. But these are his reasons then as to why that has to be done by a man. As to what he says in 1 Timothy 2 verses 13 through 14. These are his reasons why women are to remain quiet and let the man preach and teach. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. His point has nothing to do with culture. He doesn't say, hey guys, ladies, if you could just be quiet, just temporarily, so that men can do it, because culturally this is going to get awkward. He doesn't. He makes the point, and then he takes them all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he explains that, listen, this needs to be a male role. Why? Well, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. That was always a sign of headship. It was always a sign of understanding that men are to be the heads of their home. And when it comes to the church then, the gathered church, God's family, God's made men to be the head of that home as well. He's in the same way that man is meant to be head of his family. When it comes to God's family, God's put men over that as well. And his second reason was that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now listen, so that we not offend people unnecessarily. Their point here is not that women can't lead churches because they just get deceived. Okay, that is not the point. That is not what he's saying at all. He's taking us back to that picture in the garden. When Eve is there eating the forbidden fruit and Adam is standing right next to her. So she's there eating the fruit and he's like this. He should have been stopping her. He should have said, listen, stop. This isn't right. God's told us not to do this. You need to step away. He didn't. He abdicated his role. Eve was deceived. Adam should have been there to help her and lead her through that. But he failed. He abdicated his role. This is what Paul is saying. Then listen, Adam was deceived. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What he means is this. Men should be preaching and not women. 
Why? Well, because it's a sign of headship. And when women do it, you're messing with created order. And bad things then will happen. That's his point. You want to start messing up with this? Please don't. Because just like in the garden, bad things will happen. Things will happen that will be difficult. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for example, the issue is head covering. That is a cultural issue, right? Because head covering in that season of time meant something very specific. So ladies wore head covering, and if they didn't, they were truly disrespecting their husbands. And that became common practice in the church. So women were coming in without their head covering on, and Paul saying, hey, listen, don't do that. When you pray and prophesy, you need to wear head covering because you're dishonoring your head. So why don't we all wear head covering today? Well, because head covering doesn't mean anything today. It's moved on. I don't think because Emma doesn't wear head covering that people think, my, she's dishonoring Dave, something shocking. It's just not our culture at all. The focus was the head covering meaning something. So we know that's cultural. But here, Paul's focus is preaching. Something cross-cultural cross-generational, cross all things. And so the idea that this was just a cultural argument, I believe, holds no weight at all. We can't focus on that one. It just doesn't work. Number two, second pushback is that Galatians 3.28 surely supersedes everything that Paul says here. See, here's what Galatians 3.28 says. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You can kind of see how people get it, eh? So 1 Timothy 2, well, that says one thing. But Galatians 3 clearly says, but there's no Jew or Greek anymore or slave or free or male or female anymore. So it doesn't matter, right? We can all just do every role and everything. It supersedes it. And some would hold to that. Well, listen, whenever we study the Bible, context is important, isn't it? In all of life, context is important. If I say to Brendan, mate, that is just a cool jumper. None of us are going to be thinking in this moment, does he mean that his jumper is keeping him cool? No one's thinking that. You understand that? I mean, it looks good. Because you know me and you know our context. Well, we have to understand the biblical context and we have to understand what has he said before and what has he said after. And when we do that in Galatians 3, what we realize is the emphasis is on the gospel and the fact that we are all one in Christ. That there should be no longer divisions between Jew or Greek, no longer divisions between slave and free, no longer divisions between man and woman. Because we are all one in Christ. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all equal in our value and our worth and our dignity. We should be able to hold arms together for the glory of God and sing His praises without being segregated in any, any, any way because we're all one in Christ. That's his point in Galatians 3. He's not talking about roles at all. And so we can't read in that he is. Claire Smith again in her book, God's Good Design, says the convention confounding truth of Galatians 3.28, is that within the body of Christ, all those in Christ Jesus are one. The social and religious walls that previously kept people apart came tumbling down on the cross. And so they did. 
His whole point in Galatians 3.28 is there should no longer be divisions among social class or gender class or anything of any form because we are now one in Christ, a family, equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord. Now, sadly, some would use that verse to promote Christian homosexuality. If you've ever wondered how Christians can say, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian, but it's homosexual, they use that verse. Because they say, but no, no, Galatians 3.28 tells us there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Greek or man or woman. Sexuality doesn't matter anymore. I believe that is a really bad exegesis. But I also believe it is a really bad exegesis to use that to promote women ministering but through preaching. Because that's not what he's on about. He's on about the gospel and how it's broken down walls. He's not talking about the roles we play. He's already addressed that in 1 Timothy 2. The third pushback is this. But, but what if women teach under the authority of the elders? You see, there would be many churches that would actually completely agree with what we're saying and yet would still have women preaching. And the way they do it is by saying, listen, I think it's fine. I think women can preach, but if you're sitting right there, she preaches under your authority. So you could go through the message with her ahead of time and you're okay with what she says, so she teaches under your authority. We have to pay careful attention to what Paul is saying and the words, even the small words. Listen again, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. See, what he doesn't say is and. If he said and, we could probably do that. But he doesn't. He says or. He doesn't make it possible for, hey, I'm teaching, but I'm just teaching without authority. He says, no, women aren't permitted to teach or have authority over a man. Not teach and have authority over a man. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but they're exclusive enough to, make, to, to not allow that to be a loophole. Because as soon as we say that, then it would be fine, quite frankly, to have a woman preach each and every week, just under the authority of a group of elders. Why have it as a one-off? If it's true and possible, why not just equal it up? Well, I don't believe that's what Paul's saying. He doesn't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She's just not called to have that role. The fourth thing is this. Fourth pushback. But Jesus would have never liked this. I mean, seriously, I have known people to go right off the Apostle Paul through this and just start to have him as a male chauvinist. And I just follow Jesus. I ain't into Paul. <laughs> I don't like him, but I'm into Jesus. And he would have never, never gone along with this. Well, here's the thing about Jesus. I believe Jesus was the author of complementarianism and then the observer of it better than anybody else. He was a part of the Godhead in Genesis 1.26 when they were in discussion and consultation. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image. So God made them. God made man. Male and female, he made them. He was the author of this. 
He was the author of mankind, being equal in value and worth and dignity, but different in role. He was there in the beginning and there all the way through. And when he came to earth then, I trust he observed this better than anybody else. And he did. The evidence is all the way through Scripture. Carrie Sundom, in a book, Different by Design, says it this way brilliantly. She says, Jesus' public ministry was extraordinary. He treated men and women with equal respect and dignity. He nurtured and cherished relationships with men and women and urged them to follow him and to fulfill God's calling upon their lives. Here then is complementarianism demonstrated best by the master of its design. And so it was. He was the author of complementarianism and he was the observer of it to the max. See, there's no question that when Jesus walked the earth, he treated men and women with equal value and worth and dignity. See, this was a very different culture he was walking into, where women would be degraded. And the way then he offered and cared for women and taught to women was profoundly countercultural in the way he dealt with them. Firstly, contrary to Jewish practice that stood against men even talking to women in public places. Jesus did it all the time. He didn't care less that that was their culture. He wanted to be countercultural. So Jesus honored women by doing exactly that in Luke chapter 13 and John 4, to name but a few. Likewise, he demonstrated his respect and highest regard for women in the way he addressed them and with thoughtfulness and care, often referring to them as daughter. Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 10. Likewise, contrary to accepted rabbinic practices, Jesus regularly used women as illustrations in his teaching. And he often set them up as role models that we are all to follow. No rabbi did that. That wasn't the accepted custom or culture of the day. You always used men. Jesus regularly used women. Because he wanted to help them see we are equal in our value and worth and dignity. You're both made in the very image of God. And so he uses illustration after illustration about women. In Matthew 12 and Luke 4 and Luke 14 and 15. He uses them as object lessons all the time. Mark chapter 12 and Mark chapter 14. So the widow's offering. He gathers all his disciples around and says, Hey guys, sit there. Watch. Look at this widow. Be like her. Just two chapters on, Mark chapter 14. Mary comes in. She breaks an alabaster jaw of ointment, breaks it over Jesus' head. And Jesus stops him and says, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. Wherever the gospel is preached, she will be remembered. That is not what rabbis did then. But Jesus does it again and again and again. He is emphasizing an equalness in value and worth and dignity. And then in all the four gospels, we discover that it was women who were to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection and then called to bear witness that they had seen and heard. Now we can just go over that and think, why was that? Was it just uncanny? <laughs> it was a massive statement of the equality of the worth of men and women because in this culture at this time, in both Jewish culture and Roman culture, a female witness was considered invalid. If a woman claimed something, even in a court of law, it was considered invalid. 
And at each and every time, Jesus in his initial resurrection revealed himself to women and said, now you go and bear witness to me. He didn't give a stuff about cultural norms. He's saying, I love you. And I'm for you. So go tell them I've arrived. Jesus was one of the most contrary and counter-cultural figures you are ever going to come across in your entire life. And it's one of the things I absolutely love about him. There was no airs and graces. He was full of grace and truth. And when it was true, he was willing to cut against culture. But my friends, we must understand that controversial and countercultural though he was, when it came to the leadership of his bride, when it came to the leadership of his family, when it came to the preaching and teaching of his sheep to follow, he picks 12 men. And then after his resurrection, he picks 12 men as apostles. Why not six men and six women? That would have solved the problem. But he didn't. And he didn't because Jesus was the author of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Even the words of Paul ultimately are God-breathed. They're breathed out by the Trinity themselves. They're his words. And so Jesus always knew that men and women alike are equal in our value and worth and dignity. That has never been, never been in question. But in the home and in the church, we have different roles to play. And when it came to then his family, the bride of Christ, he wanted men to lead that. It's the way he called it to be. And it's the way he authored it and observed it all of his life. The fifth pushback is this. But some women are gifted, and God clearly brings blessing through them when they preach. When all biblical arguments fail, we now just go to pragmatics. So we just go, yeah, I get it. I see what Paul's saying there. I don't really get it. But anyway, when women get up there and preach, it just has a great effect. And so surely if it's having a great effect, we should just go ahead and do it. It's a subjective response, it's a pragmatic response, it's an understandable response. I get it. I'm a pragmatist myself. I did engineering for a degree. I like pragmatism. But pragmatism is also very dangerous. Because that line of thinking basically says, if you're good at it, then you should go do it. If God's gifted you in it, far away. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the arena, you just go for it. If you're gifted in it, you should go ahead and use it. And yet the Bible doesn't work like that. And so folks, make no mistake, I would completely agree that there are women out there that when they preach, they have a profound effect on the church. True. I was the recipient of one of those women growing up. Very grateful for it. So I'm not saying that God doesn't bless people when women get up to preach. But I would want to give real caution here because we can't contravene the Bible just because somebody's gifted at something doesn't mean they should go do it in every arena and just because somebody is gifted in preaching and teaching maybe the reason why God blesses the preaching of his word and his people is not primarily because of the preacher but primarily because of his gift of grace to the people See, if God waited for a male preacher to be perfect in every way before he blessed the people, 
You'd be waiting a long time. God uses sinful people who are trying their best. But his word is powerful. And so when it is preached by male or female alike, God brings blessing to them. Not primarily because of them, but because his word is powerful. And it will bless people. And if he waited for men to get their act together on all things, then no one would ever get blessed. But we must remember the warning of 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. His whole point is, listen, if you mess up with created order for too long, bad things will happen. And that bothers me about the church today. It really bothers me. I don't know what the bad things are that are going to happen. Just speaking as a guy, so this isn't from the word, speaking as a guy, one of the things that I've observed in Christianity over the last 30, 40 years, it is becoming massively feminized. There are more women going to a church than men. Fact. And that has coincided with more and more women preaching. More and more men turning away from the church. Now that's totally conjecture. I'm not saying that's why it is. But it is kind of curious. My friends, there's reasons why God sets things up the way he does. He knows the way we're made. We are his sons and daughters. He understands us. And so we can't then just change things up to make it fit in with our practices. We can't. God is faithful when the word is preached, but we must remember his warnings and be careful with them. We can't negate him or rub him away just because we think it's great. And here's the final pushback. Final pushback is, but this just doesn't work for me. Get it? See it? Thank you. Seems to be what Paul is saying. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> I just, I'm not into it. Doesn't work. Doesn't feel right. So it's not for me. To be honest, this is probably the most alarming response of all. Because it's a totally subjective response. And it is the subjective response that Thomas Jefferson also had, the third president of the United States. When he started to flick through his Bible, and he's like, oh, oh my gosh, I don't like that. He literally took a penknife to pieces and cut them out. If you go to his house in Monticello in Virginia, it's still there, this Bible with bits crossed out of it. And to be quite honest, when we say that, yeah, I see it in the Bible, I just don't like it. I just, it's not for me. We're doing exactly the same thing. We may as well be rocking up to life group with just pages torn out. But our job as Christians is not to go, it doesn't feel right, therefore it can't be right. Our job as Christians is to say, listen, when I became a Christian, I gave my life to Jesus. He became my savior and my king. And so this is my job now. I bow my knee to him. And I say, Lord, you've got my life. Help me see what is in your word. I don't want to be culturally bound. I want to be bound by your word. And I want to be brave and courageous throughout. It's not our job to stand above the word and then just go, I don't like that. Right, moving on. It's our job to pick up our word and bring our lives in line with it. 
knowing that he is our saviour and our king and our father who always does all things for our good and his glory. My friends, it's important to understand that there are many and very different pushbacks to 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 through 14. And yet if we are just able to blow the red dust off our Bibles and read it for what it says, I don't think it's hard to see it all. Listen. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's why at Sovereign Grace Church, the public authoritative preaching of God's word to the assembled church will always be done by a man. We're not just plucking that out of thin air. We're plucking it from 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14. And we want to stand on that. It is as well why at Sovereign Grace Church we have men leading worship. Sometimes people say, well, I get it when it comes to preaching, but why not leading worship? Well, here's the challenge when it comes to leading worship, just you and me time here. Worship leaders aren't in the Bible. So it's already a tricky conversation. We're already making up a role. So then the question is, well, what are we asking them to do? Well, if all we were asking them to do was, hey, could you just lead through a couple of songs and then sit people down and I'll get on? They'd be like, yeah, for sure, anybody could do it. It's fine. But we don't do that in Sovereign Grace. We're actually asking that guy to pray before the Lord all week and work out where do you believe the Lord wants to take us and then use these songs as teaching tools to bring his word to bear on people's lives and then consider where do you want contributions and do you want contributions? So if this guy leading is saying, I'm looking over and there's contributions and he goes, not now. I'm going, well, not now. We're giving them the authority to do that. We want them to lead in that way. So in sovereign grace church context, we would only have men lead worship because of the weight that we're putting on them. But we are seeking to grow somewhat and using women in other roles in our church. And I think we've done a poor job of that. That's my fault. We do want to raise women ever increasingly, not to be the main worship leader, but to carry songs and to pray and to prophesy. We want to grow in that. It's something we want to do. It's not something I've seen a lot of growing up. But it's something I want us to grow on as a church. Because we want both men and women playing a full part in the service. But when it comes to the preaching and teaching of God's word in the assembled church, we believe that is to be done by men. Here's the thing as I close. Two things that are on my heart as your pastor that I want you to understand. Here's the first. Although this doctrine of biblical manhood and womanhood is dear to us, I trust that by the grace of God it will never define us. Because, my friends, the gospel must always define us. The gospel is that of first importance. The gospel is the main thing. The gospel is that which unites us as men and women, as sons and daughters of God. It's the gospel that brings us together. And so I want the main thing in our church to always be the gospel. It's the fact of Christ and him crucified that we gather, not the fact of, oh, men do this, women do that. That's not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I never want biblical manhood and womanhood to define us as a local church. 
Mr. Spurgeon says it this way. I love it. He says, We give our hand to every man who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what he may or who he may. I love it. The main thing for Mr. Spurgeon was the gospel. The main thing that he gathered around was Christ and him crucified. And so when other people disagreed with him on secondary issues, as long as they agreed with him on the main issue, he would gladly become their friend. Because one day we will worship around the throne of grace together for all eternity. I love that. It is a magnanimous, big-hearted man. And that's what I want us all to be at Sovereign Grace. The day we separate off from different churches or different people because they disagree with us on this issue is the day we die as a church. We must always keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. That's why even with my parents who would disagree on this issue, I love them dearly and respect them dearly. And I look forward to the day when I live closer to them in heaven and we worship our Savior together. This issue won't matter then. In Sovereign Grace, I always want this issue not to define us want the gospel to define us. And yet I do want this topic, this doctrine, to be dear to us. It's one of our seven values. It's one of the things we build on. Why? Because countercultural though it is, we believe it's in the Bible. And therefore, as people who are called to bow the knee, we want to be obedient to his word and follow him as king. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for presencing yourself here today with us. Thank you that throughout the worship and throughout the preached word, we've not been alone. But through your spirit, Father, you have been present. For we are your sons and daughters, and that is our identity. Lord, would we rue the day where our identity ever becomes involved with our role? Would our identity be in you? And in you may we always find a sweet peace. Lord, help us as a church then to ensure that the gospel is that which defines us, that which binds us together. And yet would we never quickly move on from your word? Because of the gospel and because of our love for you as our Savior and King, would we bow the knee to you? And would we do everything we can to follow you as our greatest treasure of all? In Jesus' name, amen.